When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Upland Podcast, presented by Onyx Hunt. I'm your host, Nick Larson. This week on the podcast, it's listener Q&A with J.C. Bosch from No Limits Kennels. Welcome to the show for episode number 74. is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Seasons are upon us. It's that time of year. If you don't have Onyx, go get it. Onyx just did a live Facebook and Instagram yesterday evening talking about some of their new features, including shared waypoints. You can now share additional information on your waypoints. You can share tracks. You can share all kinds of different stuff with your hunting partners. It's really cool features being built into Onyx. They're always improving it. That's why we love them. Check out Onyx Hunt. Go to onyxmaps.com. Use the promo code P-U-P-20, that's P-U-P-20-2-0, 
with 20% off on X Hunt. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, the finest rough grouse and woodcock hunting experience located in northern Minnesota. You haven't experienced grouse camp until you've experienced it at Pine Ridge. And by Dr. Callers. For over 30 years, Dr. has collaborated with industry professionals to create class-leading tools for e-collar training, GPS tracking, and more to support bird dog owners in developing top-notch dogs. Find out more about Dr. Callers and all the products they have to offer by visiting dogtra.com. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. Out in the field, how you prepare determines how you'll perform. With balanced fat and protein to support peak condition in your bird dog, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food enhances strength, energy, and endurance. So when that tailgate finally drops, you and your dogs are ready for anything. Strong, focused, ready for anything. That is a Yukonuba dog. And by Gumleaf USA. High quality, handcrafted, premium rubber boots. There are other rubber boots on the market. I've tried them. They don't last as long as gum leaf. Try it for yourself. But if you want the best quality and longest lasting rubber boot you can find, probably should check out gum leaf. Head over to gumleafusa.com. Use the promo code PUP10. That's PUP10. That will get you 10% off your boots from gumleafusa.com. And by Gordian Sons Outfitters, when your boots have the proper tread, you never notice how slippery it is. When your hunting jacket features the right liner, your body temperature won't enter your mind. When your shooting vest allows total freedom of movement, you won't think twice about swinging through that quail. At Gordian Sons, they want you to focus solely on the hunt and not the performance of your gear. That's why the Gordy family has personally curated the best-in-class gear from around the globe for their store. Find out more about the gear, the guides, the expertise, all of it by visiting GordianSons.com. And finally, by Dakota 283 Kennels. Kennels built to last a lifetime. Frame steel door, one-piece rotomold design. I just got off the phone with Greg Cronkite, owner of Dakota 283, earlier today. I just ordered myself a Dakota 283 Kennel. That's right, I didn't have one. But I wanted to shake things up a little bit, get something new for this hunting season, and I wanted a Dakota 283 kennel for a number of reasons, which actually Greg and I talked about on a podcast recently. Hasn't been aired yet, but you will hear it soon. Head over to dakota283.com. Check out their new pricing structure. Pricing on all their kennels has been dropped across the board, saving big dollars. Head over there and check it out. I got the G3 medium in coyote tan. Can't wait to see that thing. Dakota283.com. Check it out. All right. This week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Richard K. Richard left us a review on iTunes, and for that, we thank him. Project Upland t-shirt headed his way. Anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you got to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. You can do that in any number of ways, including leaving us a rating, leaving us a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you listen to, just like Richard did. Subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast post, send us some feedback or a guest suggestion. We love to hear from our listeners. Nick.Larson at NorthwoodsCollective.com. All right, two quick announcements for you. Coming up next week, I'm recording this right now on August 30th. Next week, September 5th, Thursday night in Duluth, Minnesota, Upland Pint Night. It's kind of our first ever. Maybe it'll be an annual thing. Show up, have a good time, and let's make it happen for conservation. Bunch of proud partners in this thing. Rough Grouse Society, Minnesota Sharp-Tailed Grouse Society, Pheasants Forever, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. We're going to show an unreleased Project Dublin film. We got live music coming at you. I hope to see you there if you're in the area. 
And speaking of backcountry hunters and anglers, that leads me to my second and final announcement. In support of Public Lands Month, September, I encourage you to check out Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. If public lands are important to you, you need to join Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. BHA works every day to make sure you have access to public lands, waters, quality, wildlife populations when you get there. Memberships to BHA start at just 25 bucks, and if you act now, you will get a free public landowner t-shirt with your membership. Head over to backcountryhunters.org and sign up today. All right, here we go. Today's episode of the Project Upland Podcast, we are joined by former guest J.C. Bosch of No Limits Kennels. He's kind of a fan favorite. We hear a lot of good feedback on his previous episode, which I think was number 32. We asked for listener questions. I've mentioned this episode a couple of times. Most people know who he is. So with that said, I'm going to dive right into it. Let's welcome to the Project Upland podcast of No Limits Kennels, J.C. Bosch. All right, here we go. J.C. Bosch. Welcome back to the Project Upland Podcast. How are you, my friend? Doing good, Nick. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. My pleasure to have you on the show. Like I said, welcome back. Episode, gosh, what was it? Episode 32 that we interviewed you and talked No Limits Kennels and talked your story. That was a, that, that had to have been at least a year ago. I don't recall the date, really, but what's up, my man? What, what's been going on in your life? Nothing. Not, not a whole lot. Well, everything and nothing. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I know it's not nothing because you and I have chatted a couple of times over the last couple of months and, and I know it's not nothing. <laughs> well, yeah, everything's, everything's new. We got a couple of, uh, couple litters coming up, kind of getting geared up for that. Yeah. And really getting geared up for hunting season. Made it through, uh, made it through, uh, our testing season for the most part, which I do that every spring. And we had fun with that. Brandon was able to finish. We were able to finish, oh, I think three, four dogs and senior hunt titles got deuce he's up to i think three passes on his master hunt titles really good for a puppy we're just we're pumped about some of these dogs and yeah especially here coming in the season really jacked up for dove and teal and ready to rock and roll meet everybody and see everybody again when does dove season open for you is that like a september one thing september 1st okay every year Man, that's something I've never had the chance to do. There are there are opportunities near me. I mean, I think it would be I'd have to know a landowner or something. And and I guess if anybody if they know where I'm at up uh, up in the Great North Country and they they've got a lead on some good dove hunting, give me a shout because I'd love to do it. I've never never had the chance to, and I'd love to get out to do it. But I would imagine you've got some pretty good dove hunting down there. Yeah, come on down anytime. <laughs> Yeah, well, let me just uh, let me load up the truck and uh, and I'll see you on September one. <laughs> that sounds good. Do it. <laughs> uh, I'll hold you to it. How did how did last fall go for you? Because I know we talked before that. So just a brief run through hunting season, guiding. How did it go for No Limits Kennels and in your operation? Last fall went really well. Yeah, September one we got out, started dove hunting. The following weekend, it's obviously teal opener. That's kind of my favorite, my baby. Got out in Cheyenne Bottoms, did a whole lot of teal hunting, um, rolled right into prairie chickens. It's it's really kind of in chronological order. It's dove, teal, prairie chickens, and then we went out to uh, Wyoming for our full, first pretty well full season out there. Had a great time out there. Uh, shot, a, shot a bunch of uh, sage grouse, um, chased some chucker around, got some shots at them, never did a uh, 
never did harvest a, a single chucker. So they're on the, uh, they're on the hit list. This You this got year. a reason to go back. I like that. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Out for vengeance this year. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Hunting season went awesome. We, every year I get more and more excited about, about the hunting season seems like, and just have a lot of great people that come out. And, uh, I just love every, every aspect of it. Yeah. It, it gets kind of rough, but when you love it, you love it. And it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. So we're talking hunting seasons and species a little bit. I I'm a little ahead of myself. I just in case people did not hear the, the previous episode that you and I did, Give us a little bit of background on where you are, you know, put us on the map and then talk a little bit about No Limits Kennels and the operation and kind of what you do. Yeah, so we're uh, we're here in central Kansas, right smack in the middle of Kansas, just outside of Great Bend. I own and operate No Limits Kennels. I've got a couple of, couple of guys that work with us here training. Um, brought my brother on full-time, Corbin Bosch, and then Brandon, Mr. Brandon Mendez is pretty well running running the training and doing a fantastic job, I might add. But yeah, we're here in central Kansas. We kind of do do a little bit of everything within the gun dog space, um, do some breedings, German short air pointers, um, hunt testing, training. I mean, we're full-time boarding and training facility. Yeah, and then we, we kind of jump right into season and guide guide all season, um, about 100, 100 days a year. We're just out guiding uh, wild bird hunts whether it's in Wyoming or mostly in Kansas. Yeah. Pheasants, quail and waterfowl. Awesome. So the Wyoming, the time you spent out in Wyoming last year, that was, that was guiding as well. Have you been guiding out there for a while or is that new for you? It's relatively new. We've been out there, I think the last two seasons. Okay. Having a lot of fun out there. They cut the, they cut our, uh, sage grouse season in half. I heard, yeah, I heard that. I've been talking, well, I was out in Lander, Wyoming, you know, when I was out there for the, for the film festival, Wyoming Wildlife Federation. And I had been chatting recently with Sam Stein, who's, he was one of their conservation ambassadors. And we were talking about, we're talking about some things that we have kind of have in the works, some potential, uh, but he was also, he he was commenting on the the sage grouse season. So it, it used to be 18 days. It's cut down to nine this year, right? Yeah. 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 That kind of puts a damper on things, but hey. What do you do? Right. Yep. Yep. Exactly. It's, you know, it's sad, obviously. And conservation of sage grouse has been, I would say, pretty well in the news. You know, it's it's big focus in the West. And they are I was just reading an article this morning, actually, that Brandon Moss, the guy that we hunted with last year, he wrote for the Project Upland website commenting. He wrote about how, you know, the sage grouse are kind of a, they're a unique species in that they're so dependent on sagebrush that they don't have... They can't as easily adapt and make use of other food sources. So when you lose sage grouse, when you lose sagebrush habitat, it's very bad for the sage grouse, and that's kind of what's happening. Yeah, I need to. I probably need to dive into that a little bit more, just to be able to help. When we're out in Wyoming, there were so many sage grouse. It's kind of unreal to me to think that they're cutting the uh, cutting the season in half. Like, I don't know. I don't know enough about it. I don't think. Well, and I'm right there with you. I, I hunted them for the first time last year and I'm, you know, very, I know, I know the bird as much as you could know the bird from hunting with somebody that has a lot of experience, but I've only done it one time. So that's to say that I know very little about sage grouse and I actually am in the same boat as you, as far as talking to some people out in Wyoming, they were pretty high on the populations of sage grouse and the way that they talked about 
the hunt, it certainly was not that you had to walk for miles and miles and days and days to flush birds. Now, they certainly said, you know, it, you can get into situations where maybe you walk for six hours and don't see a bird and then all of a sudden you get into them and they're everywhere. So they are kind of clustered up like that. At least that's the sense that I get from talking to people. But I didn't feel like I was talking to people that were hunting hunting birds that needed their season cut in half. But again, the biologists and the scientists know more than we do, hopefully. And we'll take their word for it for now. At least they at least they still have a season in Wyoming and hopefully that doesn't get cut any further. Yeah. No, and it's kind of, I think it's kind of the same thing. You talk to locals anywhere. So you talk to locals here in Kansas and they're like, why would you travel to Kansas to shoot these birds? There's like, oh, our, our neighbors and things out here. They're like, why would people drive here from Virginia to come out here and shoot these birds? Is there nowhere between here and there that they can do this? And it's <laughs> kind of funny, but yeah, just one of those things that, so when we're out there in Wyoming, it was kind of the same thing. You're like, why would you come all the way out here to, to hunt these or they're, they're everywhere why why would you do this right <laughs> like, yeah no it's a just a love for the love for the game yeah there's definitely a, a mix of that you know sort of that adventure travel that gets thrown into bird hunting which is cool but certainly the you got a little bit of grass is greener you know like i've got a, a good healthy population of rough grouse and woodcock up here so i kind of I, I do my best not to take it for granted but sometimes you do and i i sit and think about boy, what would it be like to take a trip down to hunt quail with JC? You know, I mean, that's, that's exciting to me. Right. So it's when it's not in your own backyard, it's, it's a little bit, you get that excitement factor. Yeah. Heck yeah. That's what we live for. Right. Yep. Yep. You got it. All right. So no limits kennels at no limits kennels on Instagram, you're training dogs. You've got a couple of litters. How many litters do you try to do a year? Do you have a, a set number? No. Okay. No, this year kind of crazy for us. We're we're going to have two, maybe three. And in the years past, we've had just, you know, one litter maybe every other year. So it's, yeah, a little different for us this year. Yeah. And you're, so you're raising dogs, you're training your old dogs, of course, and then you train clients' dogs too, right? Yes, sir. What, any, any kind of pointing dog, pointing flushing dogs, what is your, what does your client dog, you know, breakdown look like? Yeah, most, most of what we're, what we're doing and getting in for training is, is straight pointing dogs. Um, we do some retriever work. Um, that's mostly just for, you know, friends and kind of more local people. Okay. Um, but yeah, we try to stick within, uh, within our niche of the, uh, the versatile hunting dog. So yeah, mostly, uh, German short hairs. Uh, we get German wire hairs, the draw hours, griffons, things like that. Well, that's what we want to do today, JC. We want to talk training. You and I had been soliciting some questions from our listeners for the past couple of weeks, actually, and we got a list of questions here. You've seen most of them. You haven't seen all the ones that I have, but I've got the list from you and me. I've got it here in front of me. What do you say we run through some questions? And these things, these questions are, they're heavily focused on dog training, but you also threw it out to where they could kind of ask anything. And I did as well. They could, they could ask hunting questions, guiding questions, uh, pretty heavily dog training focus, which I think the listeners will be pleased about because it's the off season. We're approaching hunting season. And I think a lot of people have dog training on their minds as I do as well. Yeah. Heck yeah. 
All right, man, let's dive into it. So first question is from Patrick. Patrick says, I have a two-year-old short hair getting ready for his UT test here in San Diego. So I'm going to ask you something, JC. UT, is that utility NAVDA test? Yes, sir. Okay. All right. So getting ready for his UT test here in San Diego in September, what tips do you have to really open up his duck search? And what should I do if he comes back after not finding anything for a while? Question for Patrick. Okay. So it's going to be, this is going to be fun, Nick. Yeah. I haven't seen some of these. Yeah. 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 You haven't seen Um, (laughs) these, these first four. So if you need me to reread them or anything, let me know. Yeah. Um, so we're not the, uh, I wouldn't consider us the end all for, for any of these questions. I wouldn't even consider us the, uh, nowhere near the best in the industry. So please, what you hear on this show is just, uh, just my, my opinion. Yeah. And without seeing, without seeing your dog and without knowing you, your dog, the whole situation, it's hard. But, um, as far as this question goes for the Navi utilities test, the duck search is pretty much your, the hardest part for most people. Like I said, I wouldn't consider myself an expert in this, in this field, having, having done it only a handful of times, but for your duck search, the question is to how to get the dog to stay out longer. Yeah. What tip, what tips do you have to really open up his duck search? So maybe he's making some, I don't know, short casts in the water, not not searching everywhere. You know what might help, JC? Because I, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm well aware of NAVDA, but I've never tested a dog. I've got a setter, and not that I couldn't, but I've never been through that stuff. So, are you pretty well up to speed on like what the UT test is, what it consists of? Yeah. So UT test is a uh, so you have a field work por- portion, which I believe is about 30 minutes. Um, the dog needs to be steady to fall, um, steady to fall, steady re- to release is going to be the best best thing you know that's what you want to train for um but steady to fall is what they're they're looking for and that's um dog goes on point you walk up flush the bird dog stays standing still bird is shot bird goes down dog can go make that retrieve um so for training purposes i like to you know take that all the way to where the dog is steady to release and not just steady to seeing the bird fall so if your gunners miss a bird, the bird's not falling down. You know, there's a lot of a lot of room for judgment in there. Sure. Um, so you have uh, I haven't I haven't looked at you know the rules per se in a long time, but yeah, you have that. You have a field portion. You have a uh, a duck drag portion, which is about I think it's 100 150 yards. I should have maybe read up on some of this, but <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in fairness to you, JC, this, these are these first questions you haven't seen before. So that's all right. Um, so you have a duck drag portion, which is hundred, 150 yards. Um, dog has to go out of sight of the handler track a, a dead duck. That's been drugged. Um, they got to go out, make that retrieve, pick the duck up, not mess around. And it's really testing cooperation, obedience, as well as, you know, use of nose and, tracking ability but they really want to see the dog go out there make that find that track that bird down pick it up and return right back um there's a judge out out at the end of that track watching what the dog does when it gets there and i've heard stories of you know dogs picking up a bird running over to the side digging a hole putting the bird in the hole and then running back like i didn't didn't find anything out there wow Um, but what you want to see is the dog is cooperative enough to go out 
find that bird for you, pick it up and bring it, bring it straight back with a, with a good attitude. Um, and then you have a healing portion, which you're walking through a, a set of stakes down to a, uh, down to a body of water. And then you have a steady by blind portion, um, which is you sit the dog next to a blind. There's some decoys out in the water. You walk over out of sight of the dog again. Um, they're firing a few shots um, at, at nothing, just a few blanks. You walk back over to your dog. Dog needs to stay there. Um, you can heal your dog up, walk it over to the water. You're going to fire a couple, another series of shots. And then on the last shot, there's going to be a, oh, a dead duck come out of a winger. Uh, duck's going to drop into the water. Dog has to swim through the decoys, go out there, make the retrieve of the duck. All these retrieves have to be two-hand. Um, in the field portion, the drag, the, the steady by blind, and that kind of thing. So after uh, these can be in almost any order as well. Okay. Um, then you have a duck search portion, which basically you're walking up to. The best way to describe it is kind of like walking up to a field. In, instead of water, you think of it as you're walking up to a field and you're asking your dog to go hunt without you. Gotcha. Um, the dog needs to stay out there in the water for at least 10 minutes and be actively searching. Um, the dog does not have to find the duck. They need to be out there just actively looking for a duck. And then you've got different, at your different test sites, you're going to have a whole different look at bodies of water. Like, you know, out in your area, there's probably a lot of lily pads and things like that. Yeah. Uh, you've got some places that are just straight flooded timber. You got places like out here in Kansas where we just got big, big ponds that the dog has to swim all the way across um, and search the other side. Um, but really the main thing they want to see on that, and this is the hardest part for a lot of people testing is this duck search because the dog has to leave. I mean, you get really one chance to send the dog um, before they start dinging your score to send the dog out and it's search for 10 straight minutes. And if you don't, if the dog doesn't find anything, that's fine. But if the dog does find a duck, the duck has to be, shot brought back uh, retrieve you know to a heel through all of that so getting back to the question of how do you how do you get your dog to stay out there longer so what we do is we just try to make them as successful as possible in training um so when we walk up to a body of water and they don't have a mark so the hardest part for most people is they don't have a mark the dog doesn't have a mark most of these dogs will go move heaven and earth if they see a duck fall right yeah point a to point b yeah they're they're dead set focused right so in this in this duck search they don't have a they don't have a mark they don't know that something's out there so they've got to completely trust you that you're not sending them out there after nothing so you can uh there's a lot of different ways to train this i mean there's so many different ways and the best thing i can tell you to do is go to your go to your nabda chapter get involved in the training days and then get involved with people that know, know what's going on um, or that have done it before many times. That way they can kind of help you, help you through these hiccups. Cause we all have them. I mean, I, I struggle with the same thing. I've got some dogs that struggle with the duck search and some dogs are just automatic. It's real easy. Um, but each, each dog's so different that it's really hard to say, you know, what the best, best way to do like go about training for your specific purpose but yeah we try to make sure that the dog is successful every time that they go out um, especially in the beginning 
Um, now, once you get cl- once you're getting closer to wrapping a duck search up, like they're going out, they're they're finding a bird, they're out for 15, 30 minutes, and they're searching hard. You do want a couple of, of failures in there, just so the dog knows that you know after after it's been successful. You know, it's just like with any training. After you've been successful with it, now you want to you want to show that hey, just because you're not successful in this doesn't mean that you're in trouble. Like you're you did good. That's what I wanted you to do. So you want to train through, train through failure and train through success. But first and foremost is train through success. So litter that, litter that marsh or pond or whatever you're using, litter it with ducks for your first several times. I mean, you can, we use 30, 40 ducks per dog um, training these duck searches. Um, Some dogs are a lot more, a lot easier. Some dogs you're only, you don't have to use so many, but I mean, be ready to, be ready and willing to spend that much time and that much money on birds, I guess. Um, but yeah, make sure they're successful. I, you know, that makes sense to me. Just early success is important in, in many things, but certainly dog, dog training, early success, create the excitement, make it fun, make them, you know, leave them wanting more, you know, make sure they want to come back for more. And in, I think that, you know, layered appropriately and built upon, that's what builds a dog that can go out and search for 10, 15. I mean, that's pretty, it's just like prey driving a field, right? How long will your, how long will your dog hunt a field before not finding anything and, and it lose interest? You know, you hear people talk about that, a dog with really, really intense prey drive. You know, there's some dogs that'll go all day. They don't find a bird. They're not stopping until the sun sets kind of thing. But yeah. that is, that's part of it genetic, but part of it setting the dog up for success. So good one. Next question. Yeah. All right, man. Next one is from Aaron. Aaron's got a couple questions here. So when researching dog trainers slash breeders, what warning signs should one look for when trying to find a proper trainer slash breeder? So any, any warning signs or red flags for you? Oh, this is a good one. (laughs) I like this one. So you, to be a consumer, right? You have to be the judge and the jury of what you are looking for. Yeah. So you, if you're going to look for a new laptop, you're going to know, you're going to do all your research and figure out what, what's the best laptop, you know, which, which one's the best. You're going to read reviews. You're going to talk to people. Hey, what did you like? What did you dislike? Would you buy this again? Um, I would do it the same way with, with dog training, you know, read some reviews, ask, I mean, any reputable trainer or breeder, Hey, you're going to be probably on a long waiting list. If they have availability, you might that might be a red flag. Uh, some people are just starting out, and they're they're really good trainers, but they are just starting out. So, I mean, take that into consideration as well. But read read some reviews. Go uh, when you drop your dog off. Make sure that that's the place you want your dog staying. I mean, if that's not if you get any any weird feeling about it, just don't do it because you hear horror stories. And I, I tell you know Brandon and Corbin's like. There's a lot of people that love love their dog more than their kid, seems like. And you've got to be the judge and the jury on who you're choosing to entrust your dog with. Um, that's a huge, huge thing. We can get down a gigantic rabbit hole with this, but I would say if you get any any weird feeling about it, just don't don't do it. Yeah. I mean, go meet with that person, talk with them if they're this is a huge thing within the, within the industry is just, you're, you're going to get what you pay for a, 
and then uh, B, just make sure you know know who you're sending your dog to. Yeah. Um, if that's if you're getting any kind of weird feeling or bad vibe about it, I would keep keep moving on. And there's a I'm not saying that we're the we're the end all. There's there's a lot of really really good trainers out there. A whole bunch of them. I'm telling you, across the nation, there's a ton of awesome dog trainers that you know treat dogs with compassion and respect and they do very very well but make sure you are uh you're working with one of those people and not uh not their counterparts yeah i Um, i think that's good advice i would throw in that like you said get to know the person don't be afraid to call them. You know, I'm a, I'm the classic millennial, kind of like you're referencing. I will go and spend hours researching, looking for stuff online about a purchase or something that I'm going to do. And, you know, hours might go by and I might not even think to pick up the phone and call this person, you know. So so do your research. Go go look online. Look for reviews. But definitely pick up the phone. Call the person. Get to the kennel if you can, if you can get to the kennel. And then ask the breeder if they have clients, you know, references that they can connect you with knowing that they're, they're of course, you know, they, they should be sending you to people that are very happy customers. So know that going into it, but then don't be afraid to use Facebook to your advantage in that perspective, go on some of the bird hunting groups and maybe throw out a kennel name. I mean, you might have to be a little bit careful about that, but throw out a kennel name and ask if anybody has experience with a particular kennel. You might get a little bit more of an unfiltered response from folks there and hopefully it's positive, but you never know. Because the breeder naturally is going to send you to very happy customers, which are good people to talk to. But, you know, you always want to you always want to cross check that, I guess. Yeah. And I, I'd say with like Facebook and things like that, you get a lot of a lot more of like a popularity contest. Yeah, that's true. More so than an actual an actual reference. But if you talk to people that have actually sent a dog there or, you know, are experienced with certain people, you can look at a track record too. I mean, NAVDA has all of their testing information. Google or put in somebody's name in the NAVDA search registry and see how well they do, you know, with testing dogs and things like that. Yeah. See how well these dogs are doing. You know, if you're looking for a puppy, see how well puppies they're breeding are, are doing. That's a really good resource for, for people, you know, whether you're looking for a puppy or a trainer or something like that. AKC doesn't have that, but you can pretty well see by looking at pedigrees you know who's doing what um and that's a big thing for for us because you have a whole lot of uh there's a lot of trainers out there that are really you know popular on social media and things like that but that's that doesn't mean that they're that they know what they're doing for does sure. that make sense i'm yeah. not trying to yeah not trying to put anybody down or anything like that but just because uh just because someone has a hundred thousand followers doesn't mean they know how to train a dog yeah <laughs> yeah and, and, and I should say, you know, when I tell people to go toss, toss out questions into Facebook groups, you certainly have to be careful. The people that respond to your question, they may not have a clue what they're talking about too. So that absolutely needs to be taken with a grain of salt, but it can be a real valuable resource. It's a good way to, to get in touch with people. A lot of people that have experience, but you've got to be mindful, of course, that there are people in those groups and that are going to comment that don't know anything oh, yeah. really. So yeah, the, the keyboard. <laughs> warrior right (laughs) yeah yeah exactly all right moving on aaron still aaron's question uh my wife and i are looking for a bird dog preferably a breed on the smaller size 
scale in relation to weight and height, what flushing and pointing breeds would you recommend? Ah, we, we made it a couple questions in and we got the, the old breed question, JC, which, what breeds do you like? Obviously short hairs. <laughs> oh yeah. So for a smaller dog, a smaller flushing dog, uh, that- pointing, pointing or flushing dog. So that's an interesting dynamic. Somebody asked me that question the other day. They were quizzing me about breeds and they were asking me about one breed that was a pointing dog and one breed that was a flushing dog. And I kind of had to, we had a good chat, but I kind of had to back up a little bit and say, you know, you're asking me a, a, a real fundamental question here in that, do I want a pointing dog or a flushing dog? So I would first select that, select pointing or flushing dog. And then, you know, within each of those categories, you've got, you've got a lot of great breeds and you can find good dogs across a variety of breeds. But I guess that's, that's what I told him, but I'd be curious what your perspective is. So he's looking at, you know, a smaller dog, but pointing or flushing. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to decide on that because if you're looking for a pointing dog, there's a different, there's a different answer than, yeah, a flushing dog. Yeah. It's like, would you prefer Air Jordans or boots? Um, <laughs> huge, huge difference there. I mean, they're, yeah. they are still dogs, but that is still footwear, but <laughs> yeah, big difference. Yeah. So yeah, I like, I like all kinds of breeds. Yeah. Um, th- I think the thing to just kind of, it, it's going to come down to is the breed that you choose find the best breeder within that the best the best of the best these guys a lot of these really good breeders really good dog trainers etc are all they're most of them aren't even on social there's a lot of them that aren't on social media like at all so do do some real research um into some of the background and see who's who's got the experience and who who's producing what you are looking for because there's people out there producing exactly what you are looking for. But even once you get, get it narrowed down to a, a breed, so even if you get it narrowed down to, hey, I just want a smaller-sized pointing dog, and I've narrowed it down to a short hair and a uh, griffon or a poodle pointer or something, do your research within that and see what's going to line up best for you and your family and your hunting style. There's there's so many breeds out there, so many good breeders. This is a, this is a tough question to answer. Um, it, it is. And there's a lot of variety within breeds too. You know, just, you can, a buddy of mine has short hairs, you know, one of his, he's got a female short hair that I, if I was guessing, I'd say she's maybe 60 pounds, maybe, maybe 55 to 60 pounds, but then he's got a male short hair that is much more, you know, slight frame. It's a, it's a much smaller dog, but it's, it's one of the most athletic dogs, I've ever hunted over. I mean, that dog can, he's, he's a, he's like a perfect size in, in what I've seen from a short hair. And so that's just to say, even in a, even in a breed, different breeders are going to breed for slightly different conformation and size. So you can, if you have a couple of breeds that you like, go out and like you said, do some research, look for a breeder that maybe breeds for a smaller dog. Cause you'll find that even within a specific breed. Yeah. I try to keep from, uh, having everyone call me, but I'm more than willing, more than willing to help on things like that. You know, if you, if you call me and you say, Hey, I'm looking for a, an English cocker, like, okay, well, I, I know a guy and, uh, he's, he would be my go-to within that breed. Um, but you also need to figure out, you know, what, so you got that breed. Yeah. Do you want a, do you want like a field bred one that's going to be bouncing off the walls and going crazy? 
um, but that's probably a very, very, very good hunter. Or, I mean, are you willing to sacrifice a little, uh, a little drive and things like that to account for livability? So like with, with us, we're, we're breeding for dogs that we can live with. You know, we live with these dogs 365 days a year. They're in my house. They're, you know, I want, I want good companions, A, um, because we're not always hunting, uh, even though we hunt more than most, but still I want a well-rounded dog that we can live with. And I'm willing to sacrifice some drive speed, things of that nature to get my end goal of, I want a really nice dog that can, you know, lay on my feet and watch TV and just hang out as well as we go out in the field and flip that switch and turn it on and the dog can tear it up. And so you've got dogs that are, we've got dogs in for training right now that are just too, way too hot for their owners. Like get a buddy down in Texas that has a dog. This dog is just so extremely fired up about everything um, that it makes him hard to live with. Yeah, dog was on top of their refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> you said dog, They're, not cat, right? <laughs> right, dog. <laughs> and he just loves to run, but he's bred more for field and field trialing. And that was, you know, the specific breeding of what what that breeder was looking for was speed, stamina, nose, drive, desire, and not so much the uh, lay around the house and, and be a good family dog. So you have you have that difference within the breed itself. So just look for, look for and find somebody that's breeding for what you are looking for. You'll, you will find those people. You'll find the people that have the same, the same goals in mind that, that you're looking for. Um, you just got to do the legwork and, and find them. Yeah, that's, that's good advice. The last thing that I will say is a lot of people, this, I mean, this is a very common question. People, they want a bird dog and they start, you go from the, like I almost refer to it as like a top-down approach, pointing or flushing dog, and then it's breed. Which breed do I want? Don't be afraid to go to ask questions on a line of thinking that is more of a bottom-up approach, and that's what you're referring to, JC, is like forget about breed for a minute, and if if you really want to hunt rough grouse or you really want to hunt pheasant or you really want to hunt quail, like start there, start at the bird or the behavior, the demeanor of the dog and look for dogs that fit those things, those attributes that you got a a breeder that breeds rough grouse dogs. And then you kind of back into, okay, so he's breeding this kind of a breed. Don't be afraid to look at it from a few different angles rather than choosing a breed and then just casting, casting that net, you know, over over all those breeders. But I mean, that's, you can definitely get a good dog that way for sure. I just think it's important to look at it from a few different ways. Yeah. Heck yeah. All right, man. All right, what's next? Yeah, moving on. Aaron's got one last question, and let's we'll just be brief on this one because it's kind of along the lines of his other two questions, and we want to get to the rest of them. But how does one decipher the pedigree of a hunting dog line? I see words, letters, and numbers, and it reads like a trigonometry book. So we could, you know, you could go for a long time on that. What are maybe, if anything, some things that somebody should be paying attention to if they're looking at pedigrees or should they just be picking up the phone and calling these breeders pick up the phone call okay i mean that's going to be the best people are very like we're all really proud of those those letters and numbers and things on those pedigrees so everybody that has a dog that has all of that in their pedigree they're going to be excited to uh to tell you about sure what those mean and 
why how you how you acquire those things but definitely there's something to be said for those dogs that don't have anything on those pedigrees there definitely is there's been some really good dogs but to get a uh, to know what you're getting you're really wanting to uh if you're if you're looking at a pedigree and you see nothing but fc afc things like that so you got field champion uh, dual champion you got all these fc afc all these things so if you see something with that that's a field bred dog that's a really really most of the time really high powered dog that a lot of if you're getting it for a family dog it might be a really really hot for you or if it's your first um, dog or something yeah but just because it has all those attributes doesn't mean it's the right dog for you but which is right. a great point right so look for uh so if you got a like a vc that's a very well trained dog a master hunt title that's a very well trained dog senior hunt title kind of the same way you you've got some of these things that are training um but the champion like those champions are most most of the time field champions they're competing against other dogs so they've got to have a better nose and be faster and run harder and things like that so if you want a dog that's uh that's going to be a nice family companion i'm not saying that a lot of field champions can't be family companions i'm just saying that in general you're big running high powered dogs are typically you know field champions and things like that so don't read into that too much just pick up the phone and call the breeder um and tell you know tell them what you're looking for because most of the time i'm i'm willing to provide value for you i mean even if you're not looking for a short hair you know even if you're looking for another breed like i want to get you the best one yeah. you don't want to run around with something that's not right for you because then you're going to call me later and be like, hey, I want you to train this dog, and it's a mess. I'm like, oh, well, we could have solved this problem right off the get-go, but now you have a 15-year commitment to this dog, um, and it's not not the right match for you and your lifestyle. So, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely do your research. Call the breeder. Yeah, definitely not a bad thing to see field champion or anything like that in the pedigree, but you need the contact. So that's where you got to, you got to pick up the phone, make the call and be open and honest with that breeder about your situation. You know, is this my first bird dog or is this my fifth bird dog? And how much do you hunt? All that stuff. You want to be, you want the breeder to have as much knowledge about your situation as you do basically about his or her dogs. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, You'll be happy. I mean, you can keep everybody happy if everyone's got the conversation going yeah you know yeah. there's no uh paint a clear picture and everybody's happy yeah all right next question from andrew he says hey nick great podcast thank you for bringing guests like jc to us i really enjoy listening to his philosophy and approach with dogs truly feels like he views them as a teammate nice job jc <laughs> all right andrew's question I, it's a longer one so bear with me and if you need me to repeat i will i live in wisconsin and i'm working on a few things with my one and a half to two year old short hair my main area I need help with is focus on water work. I learned about NAVDA prior to being able to run her NA, natural ability, and I am working on developing her water search so she can test in UPT and UT. What is UPT? UPT is the utility preparedness test. Okay. Uh, it's the uh, kind of the, the precursor. Step. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to have a UPT to test in utility. It'll, it'll help, especially if it's your, your first time running utility or any kind of NABDA thing. That will definitely help get you there. 
Okay, uh, so this we- is this is uh this is another question along the lines basically of the duck or water search in the utility test. Basic water intro is accomplished, she enjoys the water, will swim under her own volition, retreat bumpers. If lost, is willing to take my direction from the water to go where I'm pointing to look. However, I'm not sure what the stepping stone is for her going into the water without a visual cue. I'm starting to pause longer and longer after my bumper throw. What's next? So I'm just trying to understand this in my head. So he's he's throwing a bumper into the water and there must be some kind of a release command that you give the dog anyways. I don't know. I'm not sure what he's referring to as like a visual cue. I think he's he's talking about a mark. Okay. He's probably just talking about he's throwing marks and she's good with going out and picking up things. Um, he's trying to develop a search is what it sounds like. Okay. Um, what I would do is, uh, where's Andrew from? Uh, he said Wisconsin. Hey, that's perfect. Wisconsin, Minnesota, you've got the best trainers in the country up there especially as far as NAVDA is concerned, get to your local NAVDA chapter and everyone there will be willing to help you provide some value for, for those trainers, you know, tell them you're, you're willing to take ducks out and take care of birds, clean up poop, whatever you've got to do to provide value for them. Especially if you're up there, there's really no, no excuse for not, not having a, not having a place to train. You've got Kelly farms right there. You've got, Clyde better. Yep. Sharpshooter. He did say, he does say he, he goes on to say, I kind of pause. He goes on to say, I have attended my local NAVDA test and volunteered and asked several people their opinion. So I have some ideas, but looking for your general approach. So he's doing some of those first steps, which is good. I have easy access to dead ducks and can get live ducks, but not as readily. I've done force fetch since I'm not a trainer. I don't know how far along she is but she's driving out 30 to 50 yards for a place bumper and a thrown bumper and returns the hand. So that's, that's like kind of a, like an aside. He's talking about that. I mean, it sounds like he's doing, he's doing really well. He's involved in Navdi. He's going asking the questions, but that question on, on the duck search was his primary question. Yep. So I get out, get out to those clubs. They have training days. They, yep. I mean, they'll train on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. They train all the time, especially those pros. Go out, provide some value for them, ask them those questions, say, hey, can you take a look at my dog? This is what I'm having trouble with. That's what I've done. I mean, that's that's going to be the best way to do it because without me without me actually laying eyes on the dog and seeing what's going on, I have no idea. Yeah. Um, and even, even if I did lay eyes on the dog, I still may have no idea and still might be sending you, hey, you should probably call this guy and ask him what he thinks. Those guys that have all the experience and have done really well for – many, many years, those would be the guys to talk to. And you're in a perfect place there in Wisconsin to provide value for those, those people and have them, uh, most of them will be happy to help you and reciprocate that. Cool. Good question. Yep. All right. Thank you, Andrew. Next question from Travis this is the last one I got via email before we hop into some of your Instagram questions. Travis says, first, I'd like to say thanks for a great podcast. You asked for dog training questions. So here goes. I'm a DD guy, which we are going to assume for the sake of this podcast that he means Deutsch Drahtar. I'm a DD guy. My brother and I have a small kennel and train with a group of JGHV folks in Washington. 
JGHVM, I'm guessing, is one of the German training groups. Do you know what that acronym is, JC? Oh, no. No, sir. <laughs> so, yeah, we're, we're assuming he's a Deutsch Drahthar guy. I, I could have probably responded and asked him to clarify, but uh, we didn't do that much show prep. So <laughs> we'll do that next time. My brother and I have a small kennel and train with a group of JGHV folks in Washington. Can you walk me through your process for training steadiness and especially what tips do you have for dogs that have caught a planted bird or two? So this is a great question. Steadiness, I think is one of the, one of the coolest topics when you're talking pointing dogs or flushing dogs, really. But I was going to ask you, I was going to insert one of my own questions and this seems like a really good place to do it. So this will segue you into answering Travis's question as a Upland bird hunting guide. What do you require of your pointing dogs for steadiness in the field? And does that vary between when you're hunting by yourself or when you have clients? And then once you describe what you require for steadiness, then you can go right into Travis's question into how you get there. So what I require for steadiness is for my, the dogs on my guide string, if you, if you will, I like all of them to be steady to at least shot. Steady to Um, shot. Okay. So I have dogs that are steady to release. I have oh, a half dozen dogs that are steady to release. Um, the thing about wild bird hunting is you want I, I want my dogs rolling as soon as that shot goes off because sometimes you just have a winged you have a winged rooster and that thing can be gaining some serious ground um, by the time the dogs get up to it. Um, and then I also when I'm training steady to release, I'm also you know, walking over to the dog and tapping it on the, on the side or the head and releasing it. Um, and that would be kind of a pain for wild bird hunting. Um, if I'm having to walk by every dog and basically push their button, like, okay, you're good. You're good. You're good. So I, I let dogs on wild bird hunts go at the shot. Um, younger dogs, you know, under a year old first hunting season, I let them go pretty much whenever. Um, I'm not, too concerned about that because that segues us into the training young dogs i'm I'm letting them pretty much do whatever whatever they want aside from flushing a bird yeah ripping it right so if a dog locks up on point and they don't they don't at least wait until i get there and they flush their own bird i'm not shooting that and so typically those dogs i'm not guiding with Right, because you can have a a german short-haired flusher really really fast (laughs) yeah um if you, if you kind of reward them for that, you know, for that behavior. And that's not what we're, we're really about. We want, we want to see pointing dogs point, right? So segue into, uh, into the training. That's really the main part about training is knowing, uh, let these birds, especially wild birds will teach these dogs a whole lot more, a hell of a lot quicker than we can. So if you just let nature kind of take its course here and, and you don't screw up, your dog will be fine. But if your dog's overpressuring birds, uh, getting too close, that, that wild bird's going to fly. And if that wild bird flies, your dog basically just flushed that bird. So don't shoot that bird. Um, don't give them that reward of flushing their own, flushing their own bird. And if they don't get that bird in their mouth, that's generally enough of a uh, reward for most of our versatile dogs, especially to, uh, to kind of encourage them to flush their own birds all the time. So yeah, for training, it's kind of the same way. Um, pin raised birds obviously don't fly as well as uh, wild birds, right? So we've got a uh, we've got launchers, remote launchers, and timing of releasing those launchers is everything. 
um, you're going to let a lot of birds fly in training, um, especially younger dogs and especially dogs that have caught pen raised birds. Um, you're going to let a lot of birds fly and not shoot them and not, you got to pretty much do everything in your power not to let that dog make a retrieve. So whatever you need to do there, buy really good pen raised birds. Big, big, big thing that will, uh, that will either, I mean, you got to live and die by your birds, right? So if your birds don't fly very good, you're not going to have a very good training session. Yeah. And your dog's going to learn like, oh, this bird can't fly. I'm just going to rush in and pick it up. And then once you get into wild bird situations, the dog hasn't put it all together yet. So for, for training purposes, experience is everything, but experience on wild birds is everything. And then uh, releasing your homing pigeon, releasing your pigeon, releasing your quail and your chucker. Just make sure these dogs aren't, aren't making these, uh, that you're not inadvertently rewarding these, uh, what do I want to say? Behaviors that you don't want basically. Yeah. 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 So, and it's not something that you have to, you know, light them up on an e-collar or something like that. It's just as simple as making sure you've got good, good birds that fly, make sure those birds get out of there. So if you've got really good pen raised quail, um, we go in, if the dog tries to pick the bird up on its own, generally that quail will fly and it'll fly off to where the dog can't, can't find it. And if it only does fly a hundred yards and the dog does run over there, generally it'll fly again. The dog will get tired and realize, Oh, I'm not getting this bird in my mouth. A lot of times it's just about being more strong willed than the dog. So in practice, you know, I'm thinking, you know, a dog maybe that has caught a planted bird or two. Now we don't know if those birds were in launchers. I've seen dogs go right into a launcher and open the thing up and basically kill a pigeon or something. I mean, I've seen that happen. So it's not ridiculous to think that that could happen, but a dog that's maybe caught a bird or two, that dog might have an inclination. You know, they recognize they're in a training field. They recognize there's a bird out there. That dog might get sent and continue working into that scent because he wants to find the bird and eat it or kill it or whatever. So that plays right into what you're talking about with timing. If you have a remote launcher, that's one of the most effective tools that I've seen from my experience for training this kind of stuff. And at that point, you'd want to have a bird in a launcher be totally ready. And as soon as you see that dog pick up bird scent, which take some experience. If you're, if you're brand new to this, you might not totally recognize that, but an experienced trainer can see that they know when a dog has the scent cone. And at that point you're popping the bird. And so you're getting that bird out of there well before the dog has a chance to get it. And depending on where that dog is with his training, you're hoping that the dog is going to stop the flush or, or maybe you're comfortable with him chasing. That's, that's kind of like other training levels at that point. But getting those birds out of there before that dog has any chance of catching it. 100%. Thank you. That's exactly what I'm, <laughs> what I'm, what I was trying to say, maybe took you first spin around the block there, but well, no, exactly. I think you explained it. I just wanted to provide that real world example. Cause that's, you know, I'm the, I'm the amateur here. So that's kind of how I think. So you're telling me that I, I've actually learned a thing or two over the past couple of years, huh, JC? Yes, sir. That's uh, <laughs> that's exactly what we do. And we've, We've let, I mean, hundreds of birds fly for, you know, a single dog that's, that's yeah. caught a lot of birds. That just happens. So until you can get them on some wild birds, because wild birds teach that themselves sure. without, I mean, without us being present. I mean, we don't even have to be there for that. If they flush wild birds. They're, they're not making any retrieve. They don't get the opportunity to point. There, there's no, there's no reward in, 
just flushing wild birds as long as you're not shooting them down. Yeah. Get a good flock of homing pigeons. Yeah. Pigeons work very well. Again, that's, that's what I have seen. And I actually just finished up a really good book uh, called building a grouse dog from Craig Doherty. I'm going to be interviewing him coming up here pretty quick. I'm looking forward to that, but he, he's a big fan of pigeons. I think most, most trainers that I've spoken with are big fans of pigeons, especially homing pigeons that you can use over and over again. I mean, just, it makes a ton of sense and they are good flyers and I've seen, uh, I've seen them work very well. So if you're, uh, if you're wrapped up on that topic, we'll jump into some of your Instagram questions. Let's do it. All right, man. First, in, do you think I should read the, the handles of these people? I mean, I never, I never know, like, you know, the f- reading somebody's first name is one thing, but I never know if they want to be called out for this. I I would. Okay. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, we'll do it. None of them are, none of them are like real personal questions or anything. So first one is coming from the happy newt, uh, squeaky toys, yay or nay? Simple question. Oh, nay. Nay, nay, nay. No, no nay, squeaky nay. toys, JC? No. So tell so me you, why. You've seen these birds come back. Uh, dogs are retrieving birds, whether it's ah. a pheasant, quail, trucker, whatever. Yep. They retrieve these birds. And if those birds, those birds will squeak. I'll see where you're going with this. So if if your dog's bringing back a bird and it's it you know it's doing its death squeak or it they squeeze on it and it squeaks every time. Yep. Um, this happens with ducks and geese and pheasants, quail, chucker. This happens with like every species of bird. So those birds will squeak and then you'll have some real real hard mouth issues um, <clears throat> for dogs that hear that bird squeaking and they think oh playtime and so you get a get dogs with some really really hard mouths that aren't genetically or they wouldn't normally be hard mouths right it's been they, encouraged right it's a, it's a game now yeah get a dead rabbit squealing yeah like it's yeah it's, it's all uh those squeaky toys are designed you know to catch their attention like that so right that uh that can initiate that uh that dog would be seeing red or you know like just having fun yeah yeah, that's an interesting point. I've never, I've never actually heard it, heard it put that way. My dog is not real big on, you know, he'll pick up a toy every once in a while. I mean, obviously when he was younger, he did more, but he's not huge on them. But I do have one squeaky toy up there that maybe I'll have to put that one away. <laughs> not that my dog, he doesn't retrieve a ton of birds, but he did start picking a lot of them up last year, which was kind of interesting. Yeah. No, uh, squeaky toys are a big nay for me. Right. I don't, I don't like that. Use a, use a knotted rope or, um, yeah there's all kinds of different toys you can use but a squeaky toy for a a working bird dog is a generally a no-no in my book yeah there's the yeah the point there is there's plenty of other toys you keep your dog happy and entertained might as well might as well save yourself a potential problem and avoid yes. the squeaky toys Absolutely. all right man next question from fathom seventy eleven seven zero one one. where are the grouse hiding in Virginia. So I'm assuming he means the state of Virginia and not the <laughs> city of Virginia. That's about an hour to the North of me up here in Minnesota. Where are the grouse hiding in Virginia? Man, that is a good question. And I, I mean, I don't know about you, JC, but I got, I got nothing for that. I mean, that's a, I feel for the people that hunt grouse down there and the long history and tradition. And I know it's not what it used to be. And it's just, it's not a fun situation. Uh, yeah. I, that's one I'm not going to be able to, uh, to provide any insight or opinion on. Yeah. Sorry, buddy. There is a Facebook group. Uh, I believe I'm going to get this wrong, but I think it's like 
Appalachian grouse hunters. And I don't know if I'm saying that mountain range, right. I know that they would be, they would be, uh, they would, they would correct me if I said it wrong. Right. So the, the guys down there, Noah Smith and, and the, uh, the Southeastern bird hunters, they know who they are. They're a good group of folks. I think if you, if you could connect with some of them and start asking some questions and at least get a little background and stuff. I mean, there are still grouse there. It ain't what it used to be from what I know, but boy, you want to talk to somebody that has hunted there for a long time to get the best perspective on that question. Yeah. All right. Next question from AQ Bucky. Any tips on reducing pressure when a dog starts to lay down on point? And then there's one other question, but let's address that one first. Okay. So I don't, I don't really understand the whole, whole situation. Right. Um, I don't know. I don't know why a dog would be laying down on point. Maybe he's just got a lower profile point or maybe someone's put too much pressure on the dog. Yeah. The, yeah. The way that I'm reading that, I'll just throw this in there. The way I'm reading that is when you see a dog, like if you teach a dog to sit and then they get confused or overwhelmed, they revert to that sit. They just start yep. sitting because in the past they have learned that that is a good thing. And that, so they, it's, it's kind of like uh they're shutting down. They're on the verge of shutting down. And so they're laying down or cowering or sitting, which Again, like you said, you don't understand everything that's happened there, and there could be a lot going on, but that's the way that I read the question. Yeah, so A, consult a a professional that you can trust. Um, I would consult somebody, especially with a dog like this. I would consult with somebody that's not a uh, not a, maybe a hard-nosed or old-school trainer. Maybe get with somebody that's uh, – uh, this is a tough one, but – I'm going to give a, give it a good go here. So when your dog's laying down on point, any tips on reducing pressure when a dog starts to lay down on point? Um, there shouldn't be any pressure on the dog. So like you're saying, Nick, is if your dog's laying down when it's on point, the word pressure in there has me a little worried. Yeah. Um, there shouldn't be any, any pressure, especially on a young dog. There shouldn't be any pressure for a dog on point at really any level. The dog's doing its job there, and like you said, if they're laying down, they're just trying to hit that reset button. So these dogs go back to what they know, just like what we do. We don't know what to do, but what do we know to do that keeps keeps everybody happy? So they know, like, anytime there's been pressure before, if I just sit down, yeah, we're good. That'll make them happy, and we there won't be any pressure. Right. Um, but, yeah, try not to use try not to use any pressure. <clears throat> Pressure on especially young dogs or dogs that are learning is not a not a great thing. Uh, Tough question. I would really really get with get with somebody that can help. Yeah. Um, maybe maybe call me directly and I'll have I'll have about five more questions right. for you. But, yeah. Um, yeah. That's that's a tough one and you don't want to you definitely don't want to screw something up that's maybe irreversible. So um, tread with caution on that one. Yeah, we should address the fact you were you were going here right away, and I kind of interjected and, and sideswiped you. But it, it's not as common; we don't see it much over here in the in the Americas. But if for whatever reason you have a dog that is of like ancient, like I'm thinking of an English setter that that's why they used to call them setters. <laughs> they they would lay down on point, right? And I know they still breed that way. I believe much more overseas. But if for some reason you have a dog that is just 
if he means that his dog is getting really low, maybe it's still intensely on point, but it's getting really low. That would be a totally different question than what you and I kind of address. So that's kind of like if this guy or girl were to contact you and and provide some more detail, you'd probably be able to give a better response. And we don't know the breed or anything like that. So, yeah. All right. So they had a, they had a second question when pointing, what do you do with a dog that has happy feet? So that's, that's another kind of an interesting question. I'll let you take that one. Um, happy feet. I don't know if, uh, the dog's still moving or, so you get a lot of, a lot of people have some issues with, uh, you know, a dog flagging, yeah. you know, not, not really staunchly pointing, um, just maybe standing there. Doesn't like the dog's just confused. Most of the time, if a dog has, we'll say happy feet or tail still moving, like, they have the scent and they under they understand like what is naturally happening. Like, they're trying to maybe figure out what's going on inside their brain and body, um, like because they just freeze. You know, you see a, an eight week old puppy lock up on point on a butterfly or something, and they just they freeze, and you can almost see their brains turn, their heads turning. Like, why did I stop? Right, like, right. What's going on with me? Something's wrong. So a lot of times that just has to do with the the dog's understanding and knowing what's what's going on um a dog gets flagging or kind of creeping or something like that that kind of goes back to uh get yourself some homing pigeons or, or a remote launcher or some really good flying birds and make sure those those are you're launching those your timing on that's crucial so uh, a dog gets flagging like moving its tail while it's in the scent cone or maybe taking steps towards the bird or anything like that you want to make sure that bird is flushed right then and there. So we've had dogs that kind of flag when they come on point. If you launch that bird at exact the exact time when they come into that scent cone, you'll see, uh, you'll see some big results over time and it, it's all repetition. So you got to do this multiple times, but usually that that'll solve that, that problem. Yeah. Yeah, just a well-timed bird flush is what you're gotcha. what you're looking for on something like that. That's yeah. what I would say. Yeah, and I'll I'll just throw in, you know, I'll go out on a limb and say that intensity on point is going to be inversely correlated. Intensity and confidence on point are inversely correlated with that happy feet or that flagging. So the more a dog is perhaps looking around or wagging its tail or it looks less and less intense. It's it's just not as confident and not as sure as you would like it to be. And that might just be a, a matter of, you know, continuing to build that confidence or just kind of helping the dog through that, that step. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Experience, experience trumps all. So yeah. let that, let that dog go in a bird rich environment and that problem will solve itself. Cool. All right. Next question from Dan, the Manus. how do I get my GSP to point from farther away? He likes to get right up to the dummy bird. Okay. So this one's, this one's interesting. Yeah. I've had, uh, there's, there's been a lot of confusion on this. I think when you have like a bumper or a, a wing or something like that, it's not a live bird. The dog's not going to point that. Now you can train a dog to point that, but that's, that's kind of like uh, self-defeating. We don't want our dogs pointing dead birds. I would not. I don't want my dogs pointing dummies or dead birds or wings or feathers and things like that. I want them pointing live birds that can fly. So to get them to point from further away, you know, if, if we're talking about a, a live bird, 
Um, this is all just timing on your launcher again, timing with your, your flush. So if they're, if you want them to point from further away, you're going to have to run on wild birds that won't let a dog pressure them too much or have really good timing on your launcher or your bird release. And then outside of that, the only way that you can get that is you're going to have to have a dog with a better nose. Um, yep. Yeah. So you either got a lot of work or you need to get another dog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And no, that, just... well, that question is a little bit interesting in the sense that he threw in that, you know, if he wouldn't have said dummy bird, I think we would have totally addressed that question from the perspective of like using live pigeons and launchers, but he threw in dummy bird. And I actually, I think there was, it was a little bit confusing the way it read and I even cleaned it up. So I, so I read it better, but I'm just not a hundred percent sure what he means by dummy bird. Does he actually mean like a wing or like a docking training tool? Or is that maybe how he's referring to a training bird? I don't know, but that certainly influences the question. Yeah. No, and I've had, I've had guys call and they, they've had their dog out and it's like, well, my dog's not pointing the bumper. And I'm like, Oh, well, the, why would you want them to point a bumper? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, for, for scent detection and things like that, I can see, uh, I can see why you would want them to point an inanimate or non-moving object. But for our hunting purposes, yeah, we don't want them pointing dead birds, bumpers, things like that. We do want them using their nose to find them though. Right. Um, good question. Yeah. Uh, send me an email. Yeah. If you want further clarification on that. All right. Next one. Luna, the GSP says, how long of a waiting list for a puppy? So we'll assume that that person is referring to your waiting list, JC. Our waiting list is not, is not long at all right now. Now I, I don't subscribe to the, uh, you know, I want this color and these patches and I want a black roan male. Like I, I have no control over any of that. I'm not God. Our waiting list is is really short right now. I mean, we've, we've got some availability on, on a couple of litters coming up. So not very long right now. I've had people on waiting lists for two years in the past, but, uh, right now we're, we're open. Give me a call. Let's talk. Cool. All right. Next question from versatile canine Kona. There's a, there's a handful of them here. Four questions here. First one, if you had to choose another state to live and work in, where would it be and why? Obviously, Minnesota, right, JC? Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> Lots of, I don't know. Minnesota would be nice, but I would not winter there. <laughs> well, I um, wouldn't blame you for that. I could uh, I could summer in Minnesota and yeah. winter down in Texas or uh, Arizona, New Mexico. Um, if I had to choose another state, I don't know, probably Wyoming. Wyoming's um, pretty cool. Wyoming, yeah. No, uh, no income tax. Got a lot of tax breaks there. Damn, um, I like that. A whole lot of upland birds. Um, yeah, there's like, what, 10 species of upland birds to hunt in Wyoming. I was uh, impressed by the variety. Honestly, I walked into, when I went to Lander a couple of months ago, when I started asking people about bird hunting, I, just, I hadn't put a ton of thought into it. But but when Sam started telling me about the hunting trips that he could make right out of there, basically, I was I was impressed by the variety. Absolutely. Yeah, and Lander's where we kind of headquartered for a couple of weeks in September. So yeah, we love, love Lander. Love the people there. It's great. Kind of a younger town. That's, yeah. Beautiful place. And yep. so many different species, birds and big game, everything. Good question. All right. Next one still from the same person. If you had to choose any other breed besides a GSP, what would it be? 
Oh, I don't know. I like Griffons. Some of them, it, it, that really comes down to the, the breeding again, but there's uh, certain Griffons that I really like, Drothours that I really like, as well as Poodle Pointers. Uh, Rock Creek up there, I believe in Minnesota, digging all of their their dogs that they're putting out. So cool. Uh, I get to see a lot of different breeds and try and try and work with a lot of different breeds, and we we like a lot and we dislike a lot as well. So um, it really <laughs> comes down to the uh, the breeding. Okay. Uh, l- nope. Two more from Versal Canine Kona. What are the toughest and most tedious things about running a kennel? Uh, the time commitment. For sure, time commitment. I mean, we we've got to be here. Somebody's got to be here, letting out dogs, letting in dogs, feeding, taking care of dogs, all the time. It's a huge, huge time commitment. You're going to sacrifice a lot in your uh, your personal life if this is something that you that you want to do. Yeah, a lot of a lot of weddings, funerals, etc. That you're not going to make it to because you're you're doing all of this. So yeah, that's probably the toughest thing. Just cleaning and taking care of dogs but yeah when you love it you love it all right last question from bristol canon kona where do you see yourself and no limits kennels in 5 10 15 years into the future well i've always said that i'll be guiding bird hunts until i die and when i can no longer guide bird hunts i will probably be dead um, <laughs> so i don't see anything uh, i don't see anything or any reason why any of that would change definitely want to continue to grow as far as uh, the kennel, we're not really, uh, you know, looking at it expanding, you know, our our operation here. We just try to increase the, the level of quality and the, the amount of training that each dog's getting. Basically, these, these relationships that we have with our current clients, and we're just working on bettering the quality and not so much the quantity. So, yeah, 5, 10, 15 years, I'd love to have a, love to have a kennel full of... Uh, Versatile champions, confirmation champions, and have best guide string in the world. Awesome. All right. Thanks for that question. Next one is from Fathom7011. Same guy that asked, or same guy or girl, I don't know. They asked about grouse hunting in Virginia. So we couldn't help him with that. Hopefully we can help him with this one, JC. Question is, what is the best tip for scent training a four-month-old teaching trailing and scent point? Okay, so uh, for for pointing, we want to uh, let's dispel a myth here. Um, the wing on the string, that's dead. Um, I don't mind if people do that for for you know really young puppies and things like that, but that's sight pointing all yeah. day. And right now with the kind of the era we're in, everybody has their dogs and they're all indoors, and we have a real real problem with sight pointing and just dogs gun dogs using their vision more than their uh their noses so with our bird dogs especially um i'm not so much talking about retrievers here because retrievers use their eyes a lot and they need them um but for our pointing dogs we want them doing everything off of their nose like they don't need eyes yeah they just need eyes to not run into into anything um but we want them finding birds pointing and doing everything from scent and I've heard an old, old, uh, old dog trainer tell me he's like, yeah, these these dogs see with their nose, not with their eyes. Yeah. And I uh, yeah, definitely agree with with that. Um, best tips for these young puppies: take your when you're working on retrieving and things like that, take your bumper, throw it in some taller grass where the dog has to actually look for it. 
it doesn't matter if it's a, it's a rubber smell or if it's a bird scent or whatever, they need to use their noses um, and they need to develop the use of that nose. So we uh, we'll throw bumpers into some taller grass, get them out there. They have to search for it and use their nose to find it. Um, they won't be able to use their eyes so much. Um, same thing. You can take a chunk of hot dog and throw it out in, in some taller grass. Like you got to use your nose if you want that hot dog. <laughs> um, yeah. Bones, treats, things like that. We'll, uh, I've been known to uh, hide little milk bones and things like that around the house. Just get them to use their nose and sure. search, develop that search and their use of nose and um, just keep rewarding and developing that, that side of things. That'll be a really good thing. And you'll be miles and miles ahead of every, everyone else. Use the nose, not so much the eyes. Yeah, good so, question. Love that one. Yeah, good question. Four months old, you know, 16 weeks. That's a, that's a young dog. Still plenty of genetic potential that has not been realized yet. You know, you don't know exactly what you got there, but setting up scenarios for the dog to have fun, get rewarded and use those instincts that it, that it has within itself. Yeah. I love that. All right. Next one. I think this is my favorite Instagram handle uh, of everybody. Uh, J money. The honey (laughs) says (laughs) my dog gets mouthy when returning bumpers, balls and Dawkins, meaning the, uh, the Dawkins trainers from Tom Dawkins. How do I fix this? Um, balls kind of go in with squeaky toys in my book. Real easy to roll around and stuff. Right. So they're easy to, easy to chomp on and, play with and and a lot of times we're so i i'm guilty of i use that chuck it thing with the oh yeah ball for sure launch those things um i use those for the older dogs i don't really do that with the younger dogs just because i don't want to create any bad habits um but yeah so when these dogs are puppies and people are using squeaky toys and uh, things like that and it's all just uh there's a lot of things so when their dog's getting mouthy there could be so many different levels of why, why that's developed like that. And I've seen it more so in like, uh, like the droth hours and the, the wire haired dogs, even like the more of the German side, they seem to like to chomp and roll things around in their mouth and things like that. Um, work on recall. There's a lot of, a lot of things that can be fixed with recall. Um, you can fix a lot of retrieving problems with recall. You can fix almost everything just by perfecting your recall. So a uh, dog picks something up, and if your recall is extremely, extremely solid, I mean, to where it's just the most fundamental thing the dog knows what to do, they'll rush back and don't, they don't have time to, you know, goop off. They won't even be thinking about goofing off or chomping or munching and things like that. If they have a really strong recall, they they just know, oh, time to go back. And they'll hustle back and get them swing into a heel and, and pull that bumper bird and thing like, things like that. Yeah, if you can get more specific on that, J Money to Honey, um, shoot me an email. I'd be happy to help. Cool. All right, next question from Jay Carrion, looks like. Would you ever recommend or wish to run a bird dog without an e-collar? Interesting question. Absolutely. Um so my young dog, Kobe, he is, I don't think he's, if he's had an e-collar on, it was just for the, uh, just for the tracking purposes. He hasn't been collar conditioned. He's seven months old. We haven't done any collar conditioning or things, things like that. But he also want to be 
really safe. So I'm, I'm kind of experimenting with, with some things on, on that side where I don't, I think as a, as a culture, we're getting way too dependent on e-collars and I don't like the way that a lot of people use them. And this is where I'll, I mean, I kind of butt heads with, with a lot of trainers and, and people. Um, I just don't, I think people get too, too into the e-collar and too dependent on the e-collar and they're using it as a, uh, a training tool instead of a correcting tool. An e-collar, we use it for making corrections. So corrections to learn behavior. I don't feel like you should use an e-collar to train behavior just because you can shock a dog or give the dog stimulation into compliance. Just because the dog will do that because they learned how to get out of that pressure doesn't mean that's a, a, a good way of training. Yeah, e-collars, a lot of pinch collars, choke chains, that kind of thing. I'm just not a... Uh, that's more the, I call it the old school way. I'm not all about it, but I really don't have a, a whole lot of experience to back it up at this point. So we're, we're working on some things. Um, yes, I would, I'm going to run Kobe through this season and going forward without any e-collar. If you see him with an e-collar on, it's for the, uh, for the tracking purposes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're, we do things. Uh, I'm not trying. I'm, we're we're not reinventing the wheel. I learned almost everything. I all the knowledge and experience that I have is from, you know, most of the best gun dog trainers in the in the world. Um, I try to go and listen, and learn, and we we have a lot of experience with all kinds of different dogs. And yes, there we use a lot of e, we do use e collars and we use them, you know, for uh, conditioning, um, collar conditioning. They're not really used for training something until we get into uh, a force fetch situation. That's a whole nother rabbit hole. But we're trying not to use e-collars for training purposes. We'll use e-collars for corrections. We don't own a check cord here at No Limits Kennels. I've never never used one. But that's not saying that that's not a, uh, a good way of training. I'm not, sure. I'm, it's been done like that for years and years, but that's just not kind of our, not our uh, – not our philosophy and it's kind of phased out for us. So a little different. If you want to, if you want to learn more about how we do things, just come out. Um, we have people that come out oh, a few times a week, every morning we're out training. A lot of times you can't, I mean, I, Brandon and Corbin are out training every single morning. So if you want to come by and kind of see, uh, see our perspective and how we do things, you are more than welcome to come and help and, and learn. Um, but yeah, like I said, I'm, we're not the, uh, we're not here saying we're the, uh, the end all or the best trainers by any means. We're just, uh, trying to find creative solutions to, uh, to common problems without, without putting too much pressure on, on dogs. Cool. All right. Next question. This is an interesting one from Jay Wynn. Do you think the pheasant bag limit should include a hen or two? question and then he he has some clarification so i i see where he's going with this but he's saying accidents happen and they get left in the field he's implying they get left in the field so should you make the pheasant bag limit include a hen or two because accidents happen is what he's asking so what what we try to do is you just call the game warden and say hey we shot a hen and depending on how he feels that day is what uh what you're getting if you shoot a hen or two yeah, I mean, I 
there's people that shoot hens. There are pe- um, not on purpose, but they it happens. I understand. I haven't shot a hen since I was very, very I, uh, maybe 13. But if if an accident happens and you do shoot a hen, pick it up, put it in your bag, call the game warden, say, hey, we had an accident. I accidentally shot this hen. What do we need to do? Pay your fine, or you know, you might you might get off with a slap on the wrist. It's yeah, I don't think the pheasant bag limit should include a hen or two by any means. Um, you know, the reason we only take roosters is because one rooster can cover 20 hens. So yeah. that's, I mean, the, the reasons that, that that's in place, I, you'd have to talk to somebody that's more, uh, that's a lot smarter than I am as far as the, uh, the, the economics and the, uh, the conservation aspect of that. But I don't think it should include a hen or two. But yeah, if, accident, if an accident happens, it's an accident. I mean, you can't just because you get into an accident, you know, in your car and you bump into somebody else on the road. I mean, doesn't mean you can just leave that. Right. That's kind of my my thought process yeah. is just, hey, had an accident. Here it is. It doesn't have to be a big deal. I think the time it becomes a big deal is just like be like a hit and run. You know, like uh, you accidentally you had an accident and you didn't say anything about it. That's that's usually not a good thing. Yeah. So, yeah, if you, if you accidentally shoot a hen, it happens. Call and fess up about it. Hey, had an accident, shot this hen, just fess up to it. When I'm out guiding and someone shoot, <laughs> someone shoots a hen, we're uh, we're calling it in. Let's just be transparent and talk about it. It happens. Yeah, a couple things. So I have not done a lot of pheasant hunting, really any wild pheasant hunting, so I won't claim to know what it's like to be in that position of identifying what I'm shooting at in the air, obviously that's something that I do normally just part of my regular hunting. I used to do some waterfowl hunting and stuff, but I know that, you know, uh, a hand pheasant rooster pheasant, while they're distinctly different, the excitement of the hunt, it takes over. So all that to say, just recognizing that accident accidents happen. I understand where this guy's coming from, but I think you answered it as well as anybody could in that the real easy thing to do might be to tuck that bird under a log or in the brush somewhere. That'd be the easy thing to do. The hard thing to do, is to call the conservation officer or the game warden. And like most things in life, doing the hard thing is usually the right thing to do. So for the sake of this podcast, let's let's do the hard thing there. Let's call and ad- admit our mistake, say it was an accident. And at that point, we're at the mercy of the game warden or the conservation officer. That's That's a great way to put it. As far as his question goes, again, I understand where he's coming from, but the decision to allow a hen or two in a bag limit would not be made they would ne- they would not make that decision based on a hunting perspective right that decision is based on the wildlife and a wildlife conservation from a biological perspective that's where that decision is made on whether or not we shoot hens or roosters we shoot roosters because that that decision is based in science so they would not alter the bag limit based on hunting accidents kind of thing. So again, I understand where he's coming from with this question. Good topic for discussion and good answer, JC. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks Jason. All right, man. Next question. We got, we got two more here. Caleb Bombstead outdoors. I, I know Caleb, we've messaged back and forth. I don't recall exactly what, but uh, thanks for the question, Caleb getting a new GSP puppy next week. What is the best way to get her excited about retrieving? I like to keep those things short. Now I have a whole, uh, I have a whole head start with your puppy blog on our website, nolimitskennels.com. 
um, that would be a good place to start, I would say. Um, it kind of gives you the play-by-play of what we do. But keep uh, keep your training sessions short and sweet. This is where you can use a, a long line or a check cord. This is where we would, you know, use a long line, be able to reel the dog back, work on recall, and just keep them really engaged and excited about the bumpers. Um, we don't leave them out for them to play with or anything after that. That's a This is a fun thing. And you want to keep them just super excited about every time that you pull that out, they, you can see it in their eyes. They get excited about it. You know, do a few retrieves after you've uh, worked on your recall and you've done the, the foundational steps. Um, yeah, just get them really excited about chasing, picking up, carrying. Get them, as soon as they get back to you, give them some love. Don't rip it right out of their mouth. You know, give them some love, some praise, good dog, pet them, and then take it from them and then chuck it right back out there, but don't overdo it. Uh, I think the big, big issues we see are people overdoing it to where a dog gets bored, especially puppies, you know, three, four little retrieves. That's plenty for a for a young puppy. As they get older, you can keep them more excited. It's always better to, you know, take, uh, take the baby steps there, keep the repetitions going, keep it fun. Yeah, for sure. All right. Thanks, Caleb. Last Instagram question. I think this is this is not from Caleb. It was it was after him in the list, but I don't have a handle here, so I don't know if you have it, JC. But if not, uh, the question is: My dog ended up becoming very hard mouthed and chopping birds after nine months. I notice it on small birds like chucker and quail. For some reason, he doesn't do it on ducks. I've worked forest fetch with him. Does this get better after he has had more birds in his mouth? So. Started after nine months. We don't know how old the dog is now. You know, we don't know if he's two or three now or if he's 12 months. But does this get better over time? Yeah, we're going to end on a tough one here, I guess, yeah. huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, chomping on birds is a hard – it's a it's a bad habit that's developed over time. It's generally not something that they're just doing. You know, it's not a not a natural thing. But, you know, like I said earlier, there's there's dogs that are more predisposed, it seems like, to chomp and munch on birds. Small birds, especially, yeah, quail, chucker, those are much harder to, you know, find solutions for. Um, but like I said earlier with the recall, if you can, whether it's bumpers or birds or whatever, um, if you've got a really strong recall, that seems to help with a lot of these these small issues um you'd be surprised what what you can solve just through a uh, a really really well-structured dog that knows and understands recall and heal and things like that yeah we we i think everybody has this uh has this issue at some point you get dogs that are munching and hard mouth on something there's some dogs that are just super soft mouth and don't don't ever do it, but this is a uh, this is a common problem, and uh, I think it's developed over over time. Man, there's so many there, there's so many different directions to to go with this. Yeah, I would consult with a uh, a true blue professional. Force fetch is a tricky thing. Force fetch is definitely not something that uh, that you want to embark on with your own dog. I would say that that's true for most people. Um, a case in point, I don't do force fetch with my own dogs. I used to, I don't do it anymore because what it, 
what I've found is that I'm kind of, uh, I'm just like everybody else. I'm pretty soft with my own dogs. I let my own, my personal dogs get away with stuff that I wouldn't let, uh, I wouldn't let someone else's dog that's here for training get away with. Force fetch is tricky and they're, uh, I can shoot you a list of people that I would trust with force fetch and I can tell you it's, it comes down to about five people in the United States that would do do a job that you do a do a, for, a full force fetch to uh, to our liking and standard. Yeah, that almost always helps with that munching and hard mouthing birds. I've noticed that if you're using a uh, like a frozen bird, like a dead frozen bird, you even try to thaw it out and you're chucking that around. That that creates more of a hard mouth problem. Squeaky toys, playing tug with a puppy, um, that creates hard mouth problems. Blasting a bird to, you know, basically hamburger. Sometimes dogs just like that taste of blood, and as soon as they swallow some some bird guts and yeah. things like that, I mean, then you've got you've got issues there. Um, there's so many different uh, different directions to go with this. It's a really tough question. I appreciate it. I know we don't don't have. Uh, don't have who asked this, but um, please reach out to me further. I'll, I'll do whatever I can to help. But without any uh, without any real knowledge of what's going on, it's really hard to hard to diagnose and figure out. But there's always you know there's always some underlying underlying issues, and um, sometimes it's just the the breeding. But we try not to make you know try not to make any excuses for ourselves or our dogs. You know we try to take uh, full responsibility and accountability for what we do and generally like i said this is something that we've we've created i don't think that any dog is just naturally hard-mouthed but i also i also could argue with myself on that too so yeah tough 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 question i will work on trying to uh, come up with a, some answers but each each dog so so unique and so so different that it's really hard i would consult a consult a professional. Yeah. That's, you know, the same could be said of pretty much all these questions. You know, we don't have the person here with us to answer clarifying questions, which for the most part, there's always going to be clarifying questions from your perspective. And we need that. But for this kind of podcast, you know, we take the questions and we, we make generalizations and we, we really want to get your perspective on this stuff. So that's been the focus and we've done good with that, but really all these dog training questions, there's a lot more questions that any pro trainer is going to have to get more information and clarify on each individual dog. So that really goes without saying. One last question for you, JC. You haven't seen this one. This is the last one. Got it from Facebook. This is from Colin. I'm getting a small Munzerlander pup September 1st. I will not be expecting much from such a young dog this hunting season. Good start, Colin. That's a great expectation to have. Do you have any advice, suggestions, tips on things I should work on with her or things I shouldn't do? We'll be hunting in South Dakota on wild birds hopefully every weekend. Also really want to bring out her natural retrieve. Best suggestions for that. I do have another monster, and she is a good bird dog. Just looking to improve more on the next one. Good question, Colin. Thanks for the information. He's got a dog, so he's been through some of the stuff before. He's excited about the next one. He kind of finds himself in a position that I'm going to find myself in pretty soon. I've got my first dog. Next one's coming, you know, within the next year or so. And, you know, wanting to wanting to do better on the next one. I totally understand where he's coming from. And I think he's got 
some pretty good expectations. So new pup this this fall, JC. What should his expectations be for a for a pup in its first season? Love it. Sounds like Colin's on the right track. Yeah. Um, love when love when everyone's willing to you know take the initiative and and responsibility and work with their their own dog. Every, that's what everybody wants, right? Everyone just wants a a well trained dog that they can uh, they can hunt with, get along with, and live with. Jump over to the website nolimitskennels.com. There's a blog. It's called the Head Start with My New Puppy. I kind of go over everything that I do, that we do with our puppies. Really good information. I'm trying to provide as much value as I can for everyone. Yeah, read that. We're going to have a lot more a lot more blogs and articles out in these these magazines and stuff within the industry. Um, sounds like Colin's on the right track, though. Like, really, that's the thing, is like setting setting yourself and your dog up for success. Everyone wants to do it right, but there's there's a lot of a lot of we're drowning in information and starving for wisdom, right? So there's so much information out there that if you consume all of it, you still don't have any wisdom behind that information. So uh, yeah, get with your you got a small monsterlander that's an awesome dog. Get with your breeder. Your breeder can help. They can help you get started. Nav the weekends, clinics, training days tests all that um just consume all that and get around those people that are uh that have the dogs and the training style that you like and just get out there just go try because there's no there's no harm in in trying right if you're if you're honest and sincere in your efforts you're not going to mess up and if you do mess up you know that you're going to fix it so i think that's the the main thing is some people just don't want to try because they don't know where to start just do it do something, work with your dog. Um, if you screw up, you can always fix it. I mean, that's, that's the whole reason that I'm, that I'm a professional and that we're the professionals are where they are because we screwed up more dogs than, than anyone else. Right. (laughs) Yeah. You figured out how to fix them. Right. So we, when we screw them up, we got to, okay, well, I, you can admit to your failure and say, how am I going to fix this? And what am I going to do? Right. How am I going to make this right? And then with experience, for yourself as a trainer, you'll grow and get better and you'll know what to do going forward. But if you want to kind of cut your, cut your learning time in half, get around those people that, that know and that have done it before and, and have that breed or train that style of dog. Um, I love small monster landers that I'm going to say it's on my list of, uh, list of dogs someday, but there's so many resources out there. Just go out there, find a, find a venue whether it's navda or an akc day there's so many things going on everybody wants to be involved with their dog and do things with their dog just go get involved go get involved with something whether it's pheasants forever what's your your rough grouse rough society, grouse society. yep <clears throat> there's yeah. all kinds of them there's, yeah we've got game fair coming up i believe i'll i'll be there for that are you gonna be there um, i'm gonna be there i think yeah i think so um i was just uh just talking yesterday, I've got to get a little bit more clarification on that kind of a last minute deal. So I'll, uh, I'll be there for that. Come, come ask questions. Let's, uh, I love this community. I love all the people within it. There's no, if you're trying, if, like I said, if you're sincere and you're trying to do something with your dog and you're just not getting the results that you want, just go talk with somebody, go provide value for them. That's the best way to, to get in somewhere. Um, that's, that's how I've, learn from the best trainers in the world. And that's how, you know, we're, we're all growing. So we're all 
making mistakes and we've got to fix our mistakes or we're all learning from people that have the experience and can cut that time in half. So with people and with dogs, I mean, we're learning, we're learning from either extreme failure or successful repetitions. It's all relative. So successful repetitions, you're going to learn. Um, and you'll learn through successful repetitions with people that have had a lot of successful repetitions. But at some point there's been someone in there that's had a whole lot of massive failure and had to learn that way as well. So that's kind of my philosophy in life and with dogs is we're going to learn through successful repetition or massive failure, but just get out there and go do it. Yeah. Good go stuff, it. man. Love it. Uh, yeah. Thanks for the question, Colin. And definitely I like where your expectations are at and I expected too much. You know, remember some of the stuff we talked about earlier, set the dog up as best you can. We're talking wild bird hunting here, so there's no guarantees, but set the dog up as best you can for success. Put them in your best covers, manage the workload. You know, don't expect a real young dog to go out and hunt all day long. That's a, a mistake that I made early on with my dog and it was really to no ill effect, but I just, I just didn't really know what to expect. And so I, I remember my, my dog, the first hunting season, he was probably 14 weeks old. He was a really young pup and we went out and we're walking in the grouse woods for a good chunk of the day. And eventually we got into birds and, you know, I think knowing, knowing that now I'd look back and say that that's all we needed. We got a, We got a couple bird contacts and that was a great day, but I, we kept walking and he kind of got disinterested. And I remember calling my breeder up like at work the next day, like what, you know, what was going on? And he just kind of had to remind me like as a first time bird dog owner, you know, it, he's a young puppy. Like you just need to bring him on your hunting trips, make sure he gets time in the woods, but he's not going to hunt all day, sunrise to sunset, that kind of thing. So Colin's on the right track, like you said, and, uh, thanks to him for asking the question and thanks to everybody else that's sending questions. We appreciate it. That's it, JC. That's awesome, brother. Yeah. Thank you all for, for the questions. That was, uh, that's fun. We're going to do this again for sure. Yeah, definitely. We, uh, we've got some ideas for potentially doing this again and maybe taking some actual live listener questions, maybe some call in some kind of fun stuff. If anybody has any ideas along those lines, feel free to hit up myself or JC. I'll make sure that, that your, obviously your contact info gets in the show post, but I'll also grab that article that you mentioned, the jumpstart your puppy, headstart your puppy. We'll make sure that article is in there so people can find that. Heck yeah. That'd be awesome. All right, buddy. Thank you so much for jumping on the podcast. This was an excellent one. It won't be the last time we have you on. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate it, buddy. All right. Take care, JC. You too. We'll see you. Thank you for listening to the Project Upland podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. The podcast is also brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Dogs Your Collars, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, Gumleaf USA, Gordian Sons Outfitters, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Don't forget to leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, and share the podcast post. You could be next week's winner of the Project Upland Podcast giveaway. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode.
Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.